The following episode of the 9pm edict contains strong language, disturbing political ideas, disturbing sexual references, and blockchain. Sorry about the blockchain. Friday, the 21st of June, 2019. Tonight's the winter solstice. In this episode, we discover the cause of international conflict. We have a chaos of money. We learn the precise secrets of foreplay. Turn on for eight seconds. And Nicholas Fry gives us the latest on Prime Minister Scott Morrison. He's probably on a beach in Fiji, genuinely shirtless and being limbed up. (laughs) This is the 9pm arch window of the technological Cold War butt mouse. Yeah, look, a couple of episodes ago, we spoke about the West's fear of Huawei as the evil Chinese empire. Now, Huawei is definitely a symbol of Chinese power, especially its 5G technology. Uh, But as I wrote at ZDNet earlier this week, and you can go and read this for yourselves because it's very good, 5G is just part of technology's new Cold War frontline. Uh, As I wrote, nations are searching for technology that confers a decisive strategic advantage in controlling the global digital commons. Now, Peter Jennings is Executive Director of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, ASPE, and he says the technological choices that nations make will be a key factor in shaping international conflict, particularly between the authoritarian regimes and the developed democracies. This is all cheerful stuff, I know. We'll get to some funny bits in a minute. Now, these comments were made uh, last week in Canberra. I was covering a conference, Aspie's conference, in fact, called War in 2025. So it was pretty cheerful. And worryingly, Jennings was uh, one of quite a few people who could see certain echoes in history, certain trends. He could see the rise of powerful authoritarian states with growing military power. And here, this is a great quote, he could see the drift of weakly led and fragmenting democracies that are forever looking the other way when it comes to resisting the bad behaviour of revisionist powers and the search for technology, as I said, that confers a decisive strategic advantage. Now, Jennings doesn't believe in history repeating, repeating, but he does believe in history rhyming. Quote, what I've just described to you, the comparison to the middle and later 1930s is irresistible. <laughs> Happy days. Uh, so I was fascinated, therefore, this week with an event called A Coffee with Ren. Uh, that's Ren Zhengfei, the founder and CEO of Huawei. Now, I'm going to play bits of this. He's speaking through an interpreter, obviously, uh, but... He thinks big. Human civilization is built upon uh, scientific discoveries and then um, guided by the wisdom of politicians and also the entrepreneurship uh, by business uh, community. That is how we create wealth for mankind. Now, if you've been following the news, you'll, you'll know that Huawei has been subject to trade sanctions. In fact, some American suppliers have cut off supplies of their products and services. Uh, but curiously, Ren is very diplomatic. He doesn't blame them. All those American companies, they have uh, uh, business integrity and ethics. In the past 30 years, uh, Huawei's development uh, is dependent on uh, the support and cooperation with all these companies around the world. The current setbacks are not caused by those Americans. Instead, it is caused by different perspectives by uh, certain politicians. I wonder who he means. Now, Ren says it didn't occur to uh, him that the United States would take such a wide range of measures. He, he did sound a little bit angry in bits of uh, his presentation there, um, but he 
did say he's just going to like flying an airplane. He's going to protect the vital bits like the fuel tank and the engine. This is apparently a metaphor he uses quite a bit. But he did say Huawei is going to drop 30 billion US dollars in revenue from its forecast due to that trade war. Uh, He did say that their international shipments of smartphones have dropped by 40%. But he says, we are strong. I think there is no way we will be beaten to death. That's good, not to be beaten to death. Now, also in this coffee with Wren uh, were two Americans. One was George Gilder. Now, he's an American investor, writer, economist. He's a techno-utopian advocate, as you'll soon hear. Uh, In 1981, he had an international bestseller with the book Wealth and Poverty, and he actually uh, put forward a a moral case for supply-side economics and capitalism, Uh, and that was during the Reagan administration, and this idea that that companies should be nice to their customers was so radical that that Ayn Rand, the famous libertarian, in her final public appearance, denounced George Gilder. So that's a plus. Um, Now, Gilder was very strange in this. He started talking about trust, which is fair enough, uh, because Huawei has been accused of putting backdoors in its products. Uh, Australia has banned their products from not just the national broadband network, but but everywhere. Uh, This is their exchange uh, and and telco products, not their consumer smartphones. America has banned them, although that may change. UK has said... Uh, they're okay. They're not as secure as we'd like. We're, we're happy to use them. But America said if UK doesn't ban them, then maybe they'll lose some intelligence sharing under the five eyes. Uh, well, Gilda, as I said, started talking about trust. Make them trustworthy, recognizably trustworthy around the world. Uh, because a worldwide network or a worldwide Internet of Things or a worldwide... 3D virtual reality internet, all these various goals, smart cities, all depend on a secure ground state of time-stamped uh, factuality. Oh, we, un- we, understand which, that. Uh, we understand that. Security, security, security. But right. how? That is the issue. How? And what Blockchain. about the standards? Blockchain. Have you heard of it? <laughs> yes, it's I heard it from your book. It's an innovation. Yes. And it's what the new generation of technologists around the world are working on and developing. And I think it should be incorporated in this Huawei plan for the future. Mm. Mm. Now, obviously, whenever someone mentions uh, blockchain, you should immediately check your wallet and keys. Uh, If you want to know more about why, uh, there's a fantastic book by David Gerrard called Attack of the 50-Foot Blockchain. Uh, he has been documenting the dodginess of it all and the snake oiliness of it all, uh, attack of the 50-foot blockchain. But also in this session, along with George Gilder, was Nicholas Negroponte. Now, he was uh, the founder of the MIT Media Lab. He's still there. He's in his 70s now. He had a, a kind of Cold War analogy uh, about Huawei in relation to the world. First, as a teenager, I experienced Sputnik. It's very interesting because Sputnik caused the United States to do things that it wasn't already doing. So this is your Sputnik moment. What the United States has done created Huawei's Sputnik. And you are going to wake up and do things. And there's no going back. I saw it again in the 1980s with Japan. Terrified by Japan. And there was a whole period when... Japan was this enemy, and we were not supposed to collaborate, and yet that sort of attenuated. So now we're going through a Japan moment in China, and I hope that plays itself out. What I find interesting is that everyone here is is talking about the big picture. Now, Ren, uh, Mr. Ren, for his part, he he speaks in this wonderful poetic style that, that Chinese leaders do. But he also seems to have a, a kind of well-rounded view of the world. China is very strong when it comes to engineering invention, but not so strong when it comes to theory. 
When it comes to the research to base science, we should learn from the West in a very down-to-earth way. The West has gone through several hundreds of years like a calculus and an invention of many other basic science. I think the West has done tremendously to contribute to human society. For Huawei, we invest heavily into R&D. We have more than 80,000 R&D employees. And what I found interesting is that Ren said, even though he's knocking 30 billion US dollars off his revenue, he's not cutting back on the R&D employees. Now, Gilda, I'm going to play a bit of Gilda. Like Gilda, as I said, started getting weirder and weirder. Uh, he talked about trust again, and he reckons there are technical solutions using the new cryptographic techniques, cryptographic signing of software that can render it uh, inherently trustworthy because it can't be changed gratuitously. There, there are lots of technical remedies for the kinds of distrust that arises around this uh, catastrophically insecure internet architecture that we've find ourselves using today, just as we have uh, a catastrophically broken monetary system, we got a catastrophic, which causes trade wars, we also have a catastrophically broken internet security system. Mm. And I think Huawei can contribute, uh, among all the companies in the world, Huawei is probably best situated to solve both these problems or to pursue both these that single opportunity gilda kept getting more and more pro huawei i don't know what they'd slipped into his tea because he also kind of got more and more unhinged i believe that the basic challenge of the world economy today is to address the scandal of money we today have $5.1 trillion every 24 hours of currency trading. And these, this currency trading accomplishes nothing except to endow central banks with the right to steal from the future in order to consume in the present. And uh, steal from future generations. And uh, I believe that the great, the real reason for the trade war is not trade or, or industrial machinations. It's the collapse of money. So uh, $5.1 trillion a day of currency trading is 25 times all global GDP. It's 75 times all trade in goods and services. And it doesn't even prevent uh, constant hedging of every transaction across the border. It doesn't uh, prevent trade uh, conflicts. It it doesn't uh, really accomplish its goal. Okay. And so I think that the great contribution of blockchains is to allow a new global currency that plays the role that gold played for hundreds of years of the fastest growth of the world economy. And that's really what uh, blockchain, uh, not only a new internet architecture, but also a new global architecture for the world economy. And you don't think that's virtual wealth only, just like the stockbrokers? <laughs> yeah, good question. That's uh, Tianwei. She was the moderator. She's host of Glo uh, China Global Television Network's program called World Insight. Uh, and look, that's basically the Chinese state-run English language TV network. But she was fantastic at, at deflecting things back to the narrative. Uh, later up, there was a a question from a journalist about censorship in China, but but that was definitely reflected, and uh, it was censored itself from the official transcript. And you don't think that's virtual wealth only, just like the stockbrokers? It's, it's not wealth itself. It's the measuring stick of wealth that guides entrepreneurial visions and creativity. You've got to have a measuring stick just as you need to measure the second, the kilogram, the 
the ampere, the mole, all the various uh, measuring sticks that make it possible to make a chip in Taiwan and incorporate it in a smartphone in Shenzhen and send it to Cupertino for marketing and to Israel for amplification. And all that is made possible by common measuring sticks. The nanometer is the same in Shenzhen as it is in Timbuktu. Mm. And, but money which is a critical measuring stick, is different all around the world. It's being manipulated by national central banks. And so we have a chaos of money. And that's why the world economy is slowing down now, is why trade is no longer growing, why countries are constantly fragmenting and, uh, and fighting over... Uh, valuations mm. and and I think this is uh, the big opportunity I think Huawei can play a key role in in surmounting this challenge oh yeah more Huawei boosting uh, but also more Huawei unhinging and not well not unhinging about Huawei unhinging from the depths of George Gilder's mind Life is not the same <laughs> as electronics. Okay. It, it manifests electronics, but it's a different phenomenon which is not well understood and is not illuminated by facile statements that uh, uh, we're going to be able to read Shakespeare by taking a pill. That just okay. is not illuminating. Mr. Necroponte, I think it's perfect time for you to speak out. Yes, it's, it is indeed the perfect time. Uh, but did Necroponte help? He did not. If you look at the best education in the world, it falls in two very distinct groups. There is the group which is characterized by Finland, Sweden, and Norway, where they do very, very well, but there are no tests, shortest hours per day, shortest days per year, and no competition at all. So you, the kids do very, very well. And then there is, let me, since I'm in China, let me say the Chinese method, which is drill and practice and test, and you probably kill 50% of your children in the process of doing that. But they, the ones who survive come out strong. Uh, yes, Darwinism with Chinese flavors. <laughs> Some of you may know the reference uh, in that line. How he got away with saying that China kills 50% of its children uh, is magic. Uh, I'll link to the whole transcript of that. This has all got very serious, hasn't it? Look, I'm sorry. Here is something that will lighten things up. When I was at the War in 25, uh, 2025 conference in Canberra, uh, the, the opening statements uh, mentioned that, yeah, that was just a time frame. They're not expecting a war in 2025 and a Chinese watching or a China watching academic next to me said, <laughs> I hope jokingly, yeah, it'll be sooner than that. Or well, meanwhile, in the Persian Gulf, as we record this podcast news that a US drone has been shot down by Iran, Fox News is already with the graphics, a big banner saying ready for war behind their news presenters. And uh, there was this fascinating thing from uh, a Fox talking head. I don't know which one. They're all fucking interchangeable. This is now just a video game. And I think that's good news. We're, in an er we're now in a time where... It it doesn't matter how large your population is because the population is no longer expendable in war. It's now about the machines that you have. Drones are now replacing bones, oh. Jesse. Yes, I like to do rhyming <laughs> there. So it'll be stuff versus stuff. And fortunately for us, we have the best stuff. And if we have the stuff up there, it doesn't matter what they have down there. We control them if we have a sky of drones. So then how do you retaliate, right? How do you retaliate to something that isn't human? Like, you know, they took $160 million worth of machinery from us. We have to do that, which means either hitting uh, some parts of their navy or uh, refineries or whatever. You find that you retaliate with machines. But I think it's good news because I think we are moving away from hurling bodies at bodies. That's a good. That's can, I, gotta, can I disagree slightly? No, you can't. No, you can't. Well, can't. No, you can't disagree because you're a girl and a man is talking at you and he is uh, 
explaining how a war will break out. Show some goddamn respect, woman. And meanwhile, meanwhile, here's uh, Trump from a press conference a short time ago. I would imagine it was a general or somebody that made a mistake in shooting that drone down. And fortunately, that drone was unarmed. It was not, there was no man in it. And there was no, it was just, it was over international waters, clearly over international waters. But we didn't have a man or woman in the drone. We had nobody in the drone. Are you still up in Would have made a big difference. Let me tell you, would have made a big, big difference. But uh, I have a feeling, I may be wrong, and I may be right, but I'm right a lot. I have a feeling that it was a mistake made by somebody that shouldn't have been doing what they did. Four more years, people. Four more years of Trump. Who notes, oh no, we had no one in the drone. How bizarre. And just, just as we started recording today, the New York Times had a headline, Trump approves strikes on Iran, but then abruptly pulls back. Wow. Maybe the problem was they hadn't got the crew into the drone yet. (sighs) Hello, I'm Stilgarian. Welcome to The Edict. Joining me today, as is often the case, Nicholas Fryer. Live on the recording from Adelaide. Hello, Nicholas. G'day, still. How are you? Uh, look, I'm very well, thank you, given that war seems to be breaking out on uh, our watch today. Yep. The clouds are lowering here in South Australia as well, so I think it's only a matter of time before the four horsemen ride. Excellent. I like horses. Uh, we That was all a bit serious at the front. Yeah, well, it's a seri- these are serious times. It's a serious world. Yes. Um, but in that note, I noticed that the Best in Dumbest uh, Twitter account the other day, which uh, mocks those uh, uh, those motivational posters like like there, there is no I in team and all of that stuff. Uh, it digs them out and it's this week it had be the edict in unpredictability. I wonder if anyone has ever been motivated by a motivational poster. I mean, that would I'm be, a, that sure. would be a, 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 a clear indication that one should not hire that person, surely. Excellent. Well, what's been on your mind this week? Well, I, I hate to remind people, but it has only been about five weeks, not quite five weeks since the last federal election. This may be my last look back at that recent illuminating event, but I have been turning my mind to it a bit lately. And I say illuminating because elections are, of course, amongst other things, a, a, a way of getting a bit of a snapshot of the, of the nation and the state of one's citizens. And one of the wonderful things about living in this age of instant information is that one can go straight to the AEC website. That's the Australian Electoral Commission for those who don't, uh, for those fat non-fans of of acronyms, and um, get the raw data on the on the recent election. And I pulled down uh, a quick spreadsheet of the of the first preference votes in the House of Representatives, and I started having a poke around to see what they tell us. And 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 they are, I think, somewhat illuminating. I learned a few things. Um, the first thing I learned is that uh, I've got cause for complaint. One of the fundamental principles of democracy, of course, is is the idea of one vote, one value, that, that your vote should count just as much as mine does. And what I learned was that, in fact, your vote, pretty much whoever you are that I'm talking to, you almost certainly counts rather more than, than mine. Um, a, way of, a way of measuring that is to see how many votes it takes to elect your local MP. Now, if you look at the average number of votes cast per seat across the country, the number of votes per seat in South Australia was over 107,000, which compares with about 97,000 for New South Wales and Victoria, fewer than 70,000 in Tasmania, and only 52,000 in the Northern Territory. A Territorian vote, therefore, counts for more than twice as much as a South Australian one, and even a Australian one punches nearly 25% harder than mine does. Now, some deviation from one vote, one value is, is always going to be there. You can't iron it all flat. But this is pretty extreme, and, and I think it admits of only two possible explanations. Either South Australians are generally more orderly and intelligent, and we are basically the Swiss of Australia, and we cast more formal votes per seat enough to make a huge difference. Wait, wait, wait. Cases. I can't let that go past. <laughs> <laughs> South Australians are the Swiss of Australia. And, and, and as a native of this state, you should be aware of these these. Uh, this characteristic. We're very orderly. Well, we make the trains run. And we're very orderly people who obey the rules and don't don't cause a fuss. 
Actually, I will say that because uh, my ex, Pong, who is Thai, and, and you'll understand that the, the Thais are not what you would call they, orderly they, people. They are not the Swiss of Asia, no. <laughs> when, when he first came to Adelaide, uh, we were walking down King William Street and he wondered why all these people were standing in a line exactly a metre back from a curb. And I just said, they're waiting for a bus. And he just broke out <laughs> laughing. <laughs> Having seen Bangkok public transport, I can understand why he would think that way. But so, so the, the conclusion I'm forced to draw is either that South Australians are just better at voting than the rest of you, which is, and well, there's obviously evidence for that. The more likely explanation is that Australian democracy is simply a conspiracy to disenfranchise its best. And either way, that's not exactly cause for cheer. Um, but there are causes for cheer. Uh, one of them is that one nation... The Pauline Hanson's party really is a Queensland phenomenon. Only 80% of first preference votes nationwide were cast for One Nation in, in Queensland. Now, I understand, obviously, the party chooses where it runs its lower house seats, uh, its lower house candidates and, and which ones it thinks it can win. But that, too, reflects its, its perception of where they can get votes. Um, the only other place where ONP did anything like uh, real numbers was Tasmania, where they got nearly 5%. And... That is a, a bit of a blow to my usual theory that, that, like other tropical diseases, racism flourishes best in the hot parts of the world. But and I, and I certainly will persist in my general view of Queenslanders as barely ambulatory Nazi mole rats and Tasmanians as forest-dwelling, flannel-wearing eco-beardies. And if that's confirmation bias, well, I'm, you know, I'm down with that. It is at least nice to know that that particular phenomenon is still fairly geographically isolated. And the the third thing that I, I really quite like to learn about it is that Australia is a lot greener than you would think based upon the election result. The Greens still won more first preferences than one nation in Queensland, although not by a huge margin. And of course, everywhere else they did massively better. Nationally, they got over 10% of the first preference votes in the lower house. And this is given that they were probably only in with a real chance of winning about three seats and, of course, only did win the one. What that caused me to think was what, what would happen if we in Australia had a proportional representative system for choosing our government? There are bunches of ways of doing this. Plenty of countries do. There's a, a different ways of counting it. The most widely used one is called the Dehont system, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right, and it's used by uh, at least 40 countries ranging from Albania, uh, Argentina, uh, Austria, Belgium, Bolivia, Scotland, Serbia, Finland, Mozambique, you name it, all countries from all over the world, and starting with all different letters of the alphabet. And if you ran the Australian first preference numbers through such a voting system, you would find that we had quite an in a different uh, House of Representatives and quite one that's quite different in a number of interesting ways. The first thing is that the Liberal parties would actually win more seats. They would have uh, 50 seats in the current House compared to their current 44. The Nationals would have lost a couple, but the big losers would have been the Liberal National Party of, well, not to put too fine a point on it, Queensland, who are currently overrepresented in the House of Reps to the tune of about eight seats. The Labor Party would suffer, dropping from about 68 to 60, but that would still leave them as they are now, the largest party in the House of Government. And they would be looking for, presumably, a coalition partner with whom they could try and form such a government. And who could they turn to? Well, who but the biggest losers under our current system? If you use the DeHont proportional representation system, the Greens would have not one, but 18 seats in the House of Reps. Because that's the aspect of Australia that I think is genuinely not being reflected in our House of Government. Those people concerned with the survival of the planet. What would be the changes if the above system were in place? Well, immediately a possible Labor-Green government, because they would have roughly, between them, they would have roughly the same 78 seats that the current government has. But perhaps more importantly, what we would have is the possibility of the Liberal and National parties also wondering if the Labor Party is the only possible coalition partner for the Greens. Maybe a Liberal Party we would see more concerned to demonstrate its Green credentials. Maybe a Liberal Party explore, uh, prepared to explore those areas of policy in which a commitment to Liberal values are compatible with a concern for sustainability. 
I suspect that that development would be welcome to a number of Liberal voters. I suspect Zali Stegel would agree, and I think it would undoubtedly be good for the country. These are interesting ideas, very interesting ideas. You seem to put um, quite a bit of uh, a priority on saving the planet. Yeah, it's, it is a... I think it should be up there amongst our targets, you know, life goals. Okay. Not exterminate life on Earth. It's it's it's, it's a uh, you know it's an idiosyncratic view, perhaps. But uh, yeah, all right. Look, I, hmm, it is a bit shit. Well, I mean, the current state of our policy in this regard, it's a little bit shit. No, I mean the planet. The planet. Well. <laughs> best we've got it's falling apart well it is falling apart but that's largely due to current stewardship i would suspect Uh, under new management i still have hopes for it all right well look on that note i'm going to jump ahead and and play a little clip uh because this is this is again i think my final look back at uh uh the federal election yeah 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 it will be Definitely. Uh, this is this is a comment from uh, Adam Giles, who was uh, previously the Chief Minister of the Northern Territory and now, of course, a Sky News personality. Now, I've got a longer clip, but this first bit I want you to savour for a while. There's no doubt in my mind uh, and people that I associate with that Scott Morrison saved Australia. Scott Morrison saved Australia, did he? From something. From the threat of a Labor government. Well, he did. He did. And successfully. And now, as we've heard, he goes down in the pantheon of great liberal leaders. And immediately buggered off to Fiji for his holidays. Oh, wouldn't you? Well, <laughs> we're the I mean, option you, available to me. expecting to lose. It's all gone. I mean, I his holiday was booked in, I right? So. You know, he's not going to get his deposit Hard to back. get a refund, yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, look, here's the full clip from uh, Adam Giles. There's no doubt in my mind... Uh, and people that I associate with that Scott Morrison saved Australia. And those auction results are, are, are uh, a sign of confidence coming back into the economy. And we need money going back into the housing market because as it uh, helps escalate the, the, uh, the values of properties in Australia, that'll allow people to refinance, get money out of their capital investment and spend it in the retail sector, which is suffering so hard. Uh, and if I was uh, uh, an astute investor, uh, I personally would be looking at places such as Bowen and Rocky and Mackay and Townsville, now that there's a bit of confidence going back into the mining sector in Queensland. I don't know whether he's a real estate agent. But he's got a, but what he's got a, he's got a bridge to sell you. Yeah, I, I, as, as some may know, I'm actually an insolvency practitioner by trade. That's how I pay my mortgage and feed my kids. And I was, But I was talking with a colleague of mine yesterday who has just been appointed to a bankruptcy which was uh, in which there are about five properties, which is almost unheard of for, for a bankrupt to still be in possession of a whole bunch of properties. And usually at that point, bankruptcy trustees start rubbing their hands. But it turns out all five of those properties are in mining towns in remote Australia. And he thinks that if sold there would still be something like a million-dollar shortfall after they tried to pay the mortgagees back. So, yeah, by all means, go and invest in property in in mining towns across uh, Australia, and um, we insolvency practitioners will be there to talk with you at the end of that process. Nicholas, we were talking about the impending war uh, just before, uh, Chris Duckett, who's my editor at ZDNet, happens to have tweeted while we're recording on those Trump no-strikes against Iran, how lubed up was Canberra before that? Was ScoMo shirtless with baby oil being applied? These are the questions the lamestream media will not address. So he's flicked it our way. They probably couldn't get him on the phone. He's probably on a beach in Fiji, genuinely shirtless and being lubed up. <laughs> Someone, someone in Canberra was desperately trying to call him. Prime Minister, we may be at war by the end of the day. Can someone get the Prime Minister, please? Where is he? I, I, I was about to say I can imagine that our military leaders in Canberra were, were quite happy not, be able, not being able to get him on the phone. But then the alternative is Michael McCormick, isn't it? The, the National Party leader as Deputy PM. Is, is he acting PM at the moment? That's, that's, that's comforting. Oh, oh. Uh, presumably, is if he's if he's deputy prime minister. So uh, yeah, that is that is how it works. That tends to be what deputy means. Yep. So yeah, yeah. I, I hope he would certainly have uh, Scomo's email. We might at least get an answer within twenty four hours. 
Well, uh, if we are not sort of uh, making our own reality by imagining a lubed-up Scott Morrison, uh, we can create our own reality uh, because we live in our own sewer, if at least if we're on Twitter, and I suspect the same applies on, on Facebook. The other morning, uh, some people were tweeting little screenshots saying, wait, why are the top trending topics in Australia Nazis and Jews? I mean, that, that in itself is a great sign of good times, right? The conversation is, is getting better and better all the time. Yeah. Uh, but I looked at what was showing up as my trends in Australia, and it said, number one, Sam Kerr. I understand she is a sports ball person of some kind and had done quite well. Number two was the hashtag Jamouse. Jamaica versus Australia, starring Sam Kerr, who scored four goals in that game. So that's, that is also about Sam Kerr, right? I, I, even I know that four goals in a game of the round ball sport is a lot. It was a marvellous performance. Go, Sam. Number three of the trending topics was a hashtag ATC2019. I assume that was a conference or something. Number three was Camilla, but that apparently is to do with Ed Sheeran, who's, you know, less dangerous than Nazis or something. And number five, the topic was Norway. And I thought, look, nowhere in there does it mention Nazis or Jews. But then I thought, aha, there's actually a setting in Twitter called Trends for You when the trends that are shown to you are personalised based on your location and who you follow. So sure enough, I turned on Trends for You and uh, my topics were Jews, Nazis, Libra, which is Facebook's new uh, cryptocurrency, and I assume they've called it Libra because it'll end up being used for cunts. Uh, num- well, can I get away with that? We'll see in the edit. <laughs> leave you to decide whether to edit yourself out there. Uh, uh, number four was Horford because someone called Al Horford in the NBA had foregone $30 million to enter into free ages. I don't know what this means. Basketball, that is, isn't it? American basketball. And number five was Boris Johnson. So what I learned from that is, you know, essentially me and my friends go on and on about the fucking Nazis. So now Twitter shows people like me more stuff about the Nazis. This is the problem that YouTube had, right? They'd show people or you looked at something about conspiracy theories, um, uh, moon landing hoax, say. And therefore, it would recommend more videos on those sorts of topics. And some of that mix of topics would, of course, be more loopy than the thing you've just seen. Some would be less loopy, but some would be more loopy. So if you click through to them thinking, wow, what's this? You would end up seeing increasingly loopy things. So these algorithms, in fact, open up the rabbit hole for you to go down. Uh, and, and I find there's probably some mathematical modelling on this, but this really is the challenge that I think we have to face. And I think we need the, the answer is probably fairly obvious and that we should be modelling this after the actual real world. If, after all, you dig... Sorry, the what? <laughs> the thing, it's, you can see it, just outside the window. Have a look now. If, if you dig a deep enough rabbit hole in the real world, eventually the temperature rises and you are burned to death. And if we, we should just... <laughs> we <laughs> we should, wait, how far <laughs> down are you going here? 20Ks and you're there. So we just need to set up a similar sort of, an equivalent sort of system whereby eventually after you've gone through 900 YouTube videos and discovered the one about how the Nazi lesbians are running the Bilderberg group from Mars with Elvis, a laser appears and just incinerates you. Or the planet. <laughs> Sorry, I, I, I'm on a theme here and I, I think incinerating the planet is already being taken care of by other people. <laughs> Let's give him a hand. Speaking <laughs> also on the topic of strange uh, views of the world, you know that whole political thing of calling people latte sippers and Chardonnay drinkers and inner urban elite. Sorry, I'll just put my coffee down. Hang on. Yeah. Um, <coughs> apparently, it's it's you would be surprised to hear that that stereotyping is bullshit. The Australia Institute did some research uh, back and they published it back in April, finding that essentially things like cafe lattes and Chardonnay are drinked 
drank, drank, drunk, uh, consumed fairly evenly uh, across all of the political intentions. Among regular latte drinkers, uh, the voting intentions are 34% to the the Liberal and National parties, 32% for Labor, 16 Greens, 7% One Nation and 12% Other, which by my counting remarkably reflects actual votes. Uh, Although we did note that uh, ones uh, involving non-dairy milk alternatives were slightly more likely to vote green. Uh, And uh, Tom Swan, the researcher, said that appreciation of a variety of coffee styles and alcoholic drinks transcends politics. I think that's good. Well, it is good, but I think we could put slightly different gloss on the the non-dairy alternatives. I see the figures say that, yes... Soy latte drinkers are slightly more likely to vote green, uh, i.e. 31% of them, compared to 28% LMP and 26% Labor. Uh, we should note that, as I've just pointed out, the proportion of Australians who put Greens down first preferences across the country is something like about 10.5%. So it does mean that soy latte drinkers are three times more likely than the regular popula- than the broader population to vote green. And so I'm hanging on to that stereotype, I'm afraid. Does that mean that if we force people to drink more more soy latte, that they'll end up voting green? Is that how the causality works? Well, it's possible. Imagine, I mean, I I would be personally ready to try at least on some sort of control group, not myself, of course, but uh, on other people, uh, some experiment where they're all forced to drink uh, almond milk coffee for a while and see what effects it has on their brains. Um, Look, I I think this is excellent and we should explore it further. Elephant stamp time. Elephant stamp time. Each episode of this podcast, brackets, except when I can't be asked in brackets, I award elephant stamps of approval for excellence in the category of thinking. Uh, I have three here. Uh, The first one is uh, to Quillette. Uh, Quillette is a publication which has been described as Breitbart for people who think they're intelligent. Um, it's it's kind of a, a right-wing, glossy, thinky lifestyle publication. Uh, here's a little clip, uh, because apparently there's a problem with the knitting community. When we think of the arenas in which today's culture wars play out, the kind and gentle world of knitting is not the first image that comes to mind. And yet, as Scottish writer Catherine Jebson Moore has been documenting this year for Quillette, knitters seem to be just as vulnerable to social justice mobbings as anyone else. For the victims, the stakes are surprisingly high. In some cases, prominent knitting designers have even had to shut their social media accounts, which often serve as their most important marketing tools. For listeners who, like me, have no connection to the knitting world, this all may sound like the fictional premise to a Christopher Guest movie like Best in Show or A Mighty Wind. So, to learn more, I spoke to Catherine Jebson Moore about her articles and what she's learned about the people who have turned such an unlikely hobby into a venue for hate and hysteria. Well, we're not going to hear from uh, uh, Catherine Jebson Moore here, but I'm I'm liking the... uh Social justice mobbing destroying people. What, what kind of what kind of sheltered life do you have to lead to think of knitting as a as a kind and gentle sort of pastime? First of all, it involves a bloody great big pair of, of deadly needles with which you can easily dry, which you, you know easily put someone's eye back into the back of their skull, and and one any any illustration of the front row in front of the guillotine at the French Revolution will tell you exactly what knitters are like. These people are vicious. And also there's the concept of the sewing circle as the centre of gossip. And that's true. There, there, there were, I mean, these are people uh, who are sitting together or at least communicating together online for long lengths of time because knitting is a, and sewing are slow processes, uh, exchanging gossip and presumably increasing levels of hatred. Yeah. Well, uh, gossip is a process by which social bonding has increased by spreading malicious and horrible lies about our fellow people. so Like social justice ideas. <laughs> like most of the internet. 
Uh, Nick, do you have any smart devices in your home? I mean, I mean, smart home things. No, I mean the smartest device in my home, which is my is my phone, which is demonstrably smarter than I am. But I don't have any home homey things. No, so definitely no smart light. Bulbs. I, I can't think my light bulbs on. No, well, the first thing I did when I moved into my house about five years ago was to replace every single bulb in the house with an LED, and I've never had to think about them since. And I don't expect to have to think about them before I sell. Well. That would be ideal, obviously, because if you have smart light bulbs, they're going to be paired to your mobile phone and connected to the internet and all that. So if you're moving house, you need to factory reset your light bulbs. So (laughs) that's a thing. So here's the soundtrack. Uh, GE, who make light bulbs, as you may know, uh, they make smart light bulbs. And this is the soundtrack of a, of, of a video explaining how you reset your light bulb. Welcome to C by GE Smart Tips. We're going to show you how to factory reset your C by GE bulbs, which will unpair your bulb from other devices and apps that it's connected to. There are two factory reset processes, which depend on the generation of bulbs and the firmware you're running on. Here's the first process, designed for bulbs with this package or for firmware version 2.8 or later. Start with your bulb off for at least five seconds. Then turn on the bulb for eight seconds. Turn off for two seconds. (laughs) Turn on for eight seconds. It's good, isn't it? (laughs) When's the bit where I just get my cricket bat? Turn off for two seconds. Turn on for eight seconds. <laughs> Was it too hard just to put a reset switch on turn the side? Turn off for two seconds. Turn on for eight seconds. I'm getting turned on. The thing about the video, too, is that there's just a woman's hand <laughs> showing you how to do turn it. Turn off for two seconds. Turn on for eight seconds. It's the way he says on. It's beautiful. But wait. Turn off for two seconds. And then turn it on one last time. The bulb will flash on and off three times to show that the reset was successful. If it doesn't, your bulb may be running on an older version of firmware (laughs) and will need to try the second factory reset process, which is designed for C by GE bulbs with this package or for firmware version 2.7 or earlier. Ready? Okay. Start with your bulb off for at least five seconds. Then turn on the bulb for eight seconds. Got to do this for every bulb. (laughs) Turn off for two seconds. Turn on for two seconds. Turn off for two seconds. Turn on for two seconds. Turn off for two seconds. Turn on for two seconds. Turn off for two seconds. Turn on for eight seconds. Turn off for two seconds. Turn on for eight seconds. Turn off for two seconds. (laughs) And then turn it on one last time. The bulb will flash on and off three times if it has been successfully reset. And if it doesn't, for more smart do it tips again. about our smart products, go to cbyge.com. Yeah. <laughs> and these are called Isn't it these are called smart bulbs. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So you've got to spend like a minute and a half resetting every light bulb. A- and of course, if you screw up your timing, <laughs> do, you're going to have to start again. again. Or maybe it's the other firmware. I mean, did you keep the box your light bulb came in so you can see which kind it is? Yes, look, it's it's a very nice house, and I I, I will be prepared to pay $800,000 for it, but as long as you promise to take all of those fucking light bulbs with you when you go. (laughs) (laughs) So, elephant stamp of approval there. Sorry to the social justice mob fear mongers at Quillette, and one there to GE for their very clever factory reset process. And to wrap, a very quick um, final Elephant stamp to some bloke called Randall. Uh, This comes via Charles Croucher, who's uh, the US correspondent for Nine Media. 
Uh, he posts a photograph of Randall, who is wearing his USA 45 t-shirt, i.e. for POTUS 45, i.e. Trump, has a big flag of Trump making America great. He tells uh, Charles Croucher that this is the 50th Trump rally that he's gone to, and he bleeds one colour, red, white and blue. Does he say? So, does he say where he bleeds it from? <laughs> no, but I assume it's something like a toothpaste tube. If you give him a, a big squishy hug around his ample belly, out comes the striped toothpaste, or maybe it's like Neapolitan ice cream. I'm still trying to work out which end it would come out of if you squeeze the tumble, squeeze the middle. Uh, this podcast is made possible by you, the generous listeners, through your subscriptions and one-off contributions. Uh, if you're a subscriber, special thanks, uh, because regularity is important. I'll be in touch in the next couple of weeks about conversation topics and trigger words for future episodes, because it occurred to me that, that people who uh, have been subscribers for a while really should be getting those benefits each year on the anniversary. So I'll uh, be in touch about that. Uh, for one-off contributions this time, thanks to Carl Oscar, again, Keith Duddy, again, and Simon Harris, again. Uh, you're wonderful people. Now, bear in mind, this will be the last of these podcasts for the current financial year. Uh, so if you would like to make a contribution, which is definitely not tax deductible, I, I repeat, not tax deductible. Oh, give it a go. No, fuck it. Give it a go, people. See what happens. The worst that can happen... Uh, you'll be jailed for tax fraud if you make it big enough. Uh, so go to stilgarian.com slash tip. That's stilgarian.com slash tip. Or for a subscription for extra benefits, skank.com.au slash subscribe. That's skank.com.au slash subscribe. Do it now. Uh, Nicholas, you're a fan of science, of course. I have been, certainly. Uh, yes. Uh, well, look, I, I've got three very quick science things which I have to power through here. The first one is that I am angry with the fuckwits who kept tweeting a photograph or a series of photographs uh, this week saying that they'd seen a sand dune shaped like the Starfleet badge from Star Trek on Mars. Now... Nicholas, you can see the photograph there, but I'm sure you will know from high school that that crescent-shaped sand dune is called a barkan. It's one of the five types of sand dune. Uh, it, it, they're common. Uh, they happen whenever the fuck there is uh, a bit of sand that's not enough to permanently cover the, the, the underlying rock. There's a consistent area a, a direction the wind comes from, and uh, it it blows the sand into these crescent shapes. Now, Corey S. Powell, who's a science writer for such people as Discover Magazine and American Scientist Magazine and Aeon Magazine, uh, he posted other photographs saying, Mars is covered with vast fields of Star Trek logos, as are many of Earth's deserts. This doesn't make Mars special. In fact, personally, I think there are better planets. I think Mars is a bullshit planet. So I did run a poll, important poll. I said, is Mars a bullshit planet as any right-thinking person will confirm? Uh, yes, obviously, or no, I have brain worms. Yes, obviously, 62% science settles it. Well, settles it amongst people who don't have brain worms, but I think you're being unfair to those of us who do. Have brain have, worms? Or those like of us who have brain worms. I think you're being unnecessarily exclusionary about those. You've already got a fucking senator. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wonder if they've got brain worms. Must find out. <laughs> How could they not? Uh, so that's that. Uh, another quick science bit. Oh, I thought I had three. There's only a couple of them. Uh, there's a newish product. It's actually from 2016, but I only found out about it this week. Uh, 2016. It's called H Factor. Listen to this, Nicholas. It's full of science. This is hydrogen, the most abundant element in the universe. It's one of the most effective antioxidants with incredible therapeutic potential. Unfortunately, oftentimes it's chemically bonded to other elements. 
rendering its benefits useless. Enter H-Factor, hydrogen-rich water created by super-injecting hydrogen gas into purified water at unprecedented levels. Unlike regular water, H-Factor's hydrogen is free-flowing and ready for consumption. Drink H-Factor to receive a boost of hydrogen, the element shown to improve circulation, increase performance, and speed up recovery, as well as potentially aid against inflammation and allergies. Many people have already gone to great lengths in attempting to harness the widely documented power of hydrogen, but because it's so light and small in size, it escapes easily through conventional materials, leaving the consumer with marginal effects. That's why H-Factor comes in an environmentally friendly aluminum pouch, capable of maintaining the active hydrogen until you're ready to rip it and sip it. Experience super hydration and an enhanced healthy lifestyle. Drink H-Factor. Thirsty for more? Visit hfactorwater.com. Are you convinced, Nicholas? I'm absolutely convinced. I just hope that everybody who sees that video also pops onto YouTube and has a look at the last minutes of the Hindenburg and perhaps doesn't <laughs> perhaps doesn't smoke if they've had more than one or two of those H factors. Oh, now I'm picturing Randall, our aforementioned Trump fan, with his ample belly drifting slowly towards the mooring mast. <laughs> and then... God, <laughs> <laughs> oh, the humanity! Uh, I just hope someone's filming. Yes, well, you have some further health. I do. I on the subject of science, if we're if we're going with science, obviously a major component of this podcast is traditionally poking fun at stupid people. Um, so I'm going to poke fun at some smart people for a change. Your gut, and this is just this is simply the most astonishing piece of news out of the science world that I've heard in a while, and I just think it's genuinely marvelous. So I thought I'd share it for those who might have missed it. <clears throat> Your gut, it is weirder than you think, and it's weirder probably than even it thinks. And if it sounds a bit weird for me to talk about your gut thinking, well, you should think again, because your gastrointestinal system contains about half a billion neurons and nerve cells, five times as many as in your entire spinal column, which is traditionally thought of being, you know, pretty nervy, although possibly your gut has a different opinion. Uh, Recent studies uh, have been published linking intestinal flora with autism. So the, the bacteria that live in your gut with autism. Oh, is, here we go. This is genuinely marvellous. Um, there's a, a team at- Just on the uh, the um, autism caused by vaccines thing, uh, a friend of mine did ask someone when he was getting the flu vaccine whether it would cause autism, and the, the doctor said, no, 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 we only give that one to kids under five. Yeah, well, did you want it? Do you want the one that gives you autism? <laughs> That's for special customers. Know. You know? Okay, so are we, we're this, going back to poo but this now. Is, Let's but go this back is to real. Poo. This is real, this is. Um, there's a team at Caltech, and they performed an experiment that I think may one day just be the first to win both a Nobel Prize and an Ig Nobel Prize. They took human feces from people, both autistic and otherwise, and then transplanted them into mice. Uh, and then they then, because, <laughs> yeah, because obviously it was a slow Tuesday in the lab. And then they jed, uh, they bred those mice to generate new mice who hadn't just had a traumatic human crap enema. And then they looked at the offspring of those mice. And astonishingly, the offspring of the mice who'd been exposed to the gut bacteria from persons with autism showed autism-like symptoms, while those who weren't didn't. Now, if, like me, you're struggling to work out what autism looks like in a mouse, the, the reported symptoms include reduced social and vocal communication and re- restricted movement. Now, so far, so tantalising. But I, I, I can, <laughs> They could also just be traumatised. Well, as I say, these are the kids say. of the ones who've been traumatised. So hopefully, they, you know, it's not been carried on. Hopefully, the trauma hasn't carried oh, down okay. through generations. Okay, and, and but- this happened before they were born, so it's not like they were forced to watch their parents being sodomised with hum- human poo. I think the point is that the 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 uh, young mice had these uh, had, were exposed to these bacteria from birth or from conception, so they were uh, would have been affected by it in that way. But yeah, certainly, if you pin me down and shove a, a bunch of mouse poo up my ass, the chances are I would display. Uh, reduced social and vocal communication and restricted movement <laughs> for at least a short time. Or maybe, maybe if you use the whole mouse, well, then I would certainly be looking for. Well, at least I could the, the famous gerbil speak procedure. to my lawyer. Yes. Um, 
but now, so far so tantalizing. But even more astonishing is some work that some hum- in, in humans that's been done at the Arizona State University, uh, where they just started read the DNA of all the gut flora of people, both with and without autas- autism, and they found that the latter were missing hundreds of species of the bugs that are found in in neurotypical types. Uh, so they put them back into 18 autistic kids, 15 of whom had severe autism. Now, small numbers, first study, right? plenty of reasons to be to throw some caveats around. But their report was that they saw a dramatic improvement in many of those kids. And according to a report I saw in The Economist and elsewhere, about after two years, only three of those kids were still rated as severely autistic and eight were essentially symptom-free. If replicated, I think that study could prove to be of the most genuinely incredible significance. I'm now waiting for the Gwyneth Paltrow version of this at, at uh, Goop, where it, it gets it does get transformed into do you suspect your children are autistic? Shove a mouse up there. Well, shove some mouse poo up that backside, yeah. Um, and chosen from some of the most socially outgoing and successful mice we know, the sorts of mice who go on to be the cool mice at high school. Given that you can already buy powdered placenta, I I really don't see this as being too far short of I it. think, I mean, I'm surprised there isn't a website. There probably is already a website selling this stuff. But <laughs> Rule 34 of life. Well, yeah, I'm sure there's a movie of it, yeah. Um, but I love, anyway, enough life-affirming medical good news. Uh, the other report I noted last month, which is uh, now a few weeks old, I'm afraid, but I've been sitting on this one for a while, uh, was a report out of Western China about everyone's favourite fatal plague, the Black Death. Uh, An ethnic Kazakh couple in China's West died, apparently, of bubonic plague, uh, apparently from eating raw marmot kidneys. The plague germ, Yersinia pestis, is apparently endemic in wild marmots in that part of the world. And Now, a marmot is a a kind of primate-ish No, it's a large rodent. So it's an oversight. <laughs> many, many primates I know are large indeed, too. Indeed they are, but I think this one's a bit more of your quadrupedal variety, but, yeah, it's basically an overgrown rat. And in one of the great demonstrations of, of human st- willful stupidity, apparently it's fairly widely believed in some parts of the world that eating marmot viscera will bring health benefits, and the result of that belief is about one death a year from plague and uh, periodic quarantine enforcement in China. So I think, kids, that the take-home, is that no matter how tempted you might be to eat the uncooked innards of a large rodent, um, probably just say no. Um, uh, should we wrap this up with some sex? Of course. Bored women. I got a uh, some spam email the other day. Uh, from one of the sites. It alleges Ashley Madison, but it could be a fake one. And the subject line was, talk to bored women who want to meet. And, and well, I, I was thinking about this and, and, like, what's the appeal of bored women? I mean, if, if a gentleman who's in search of, you know, a bit of nookie with some women, is it is it really bored women that he wants? So, G'day, darling. Oh, Hi. <laughs> You know, want to come? Want to come round to my place? Uh, yes, not really. You know, <laughs> not re- not really. Uh, you want to fuck me? Uh, what if, if there's no one else about? <laughs> it's, I, I don't know who this speaks to. Uh, just, sorry, that just struck me as a curious concept. Yeah, no comment. As a married man of many years, uh, no comment. All right. Uh, the other night, um, these are com- these are all completely unrelated. Of course, topics, they uh, are little anecdotes. Well, they're they're all about sex. Put it that way. So the other night, I uh, happened to be waiting to go to an event, uh, and I having a you know, quick drink at the bar across the road. And this bar was near one of the major legal firms in Sydney. I mean, one of those you know really top shelf in a in a schmick tower kind of. Uh, uh, law firms, and it became clear to me that, that the people sitting nearby were two uh, quite older and quite senior barristers, and and they'd 
they they had been just been discussing a case, but they'd also clearly uh, been doing the senior barrister thing and drinking since lunchtime, and they were slurring a bit. And one of them said to the other, they were talking about a colleague. He said, "Oh, have you seen? Have you?" And they did sound like this. They sounded like you know characters out of Rake. Uh, did you see the so and so colleague? He's got a new wife, and her name's Samantha. So that tells you all you need to know. <laughs> it's like what? The name Samantha was some erotic thing. And then it's, oh, yeah, yeah, she's Sri Lankan or something. And I thought, oh, good, you're old and sexist and racist. That's good. And then one of them slurred, do you know Do you know about cockering? At least that's what the other guy thought he'd said. He said, what, 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 what's that? How do you do that? And it's like, no, 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 it's a, it's a noun, not a verb. <laughs> Uh-huh. No, I mean cock ring. <laughs> oh, oh, cock. I, so my brain immediately went to what the verb might mean, but that's for another time. But I loved it. It said, oh, cock ring. And he said, what, do you mean am I wearing one now? No. <laughs> it was just this strange thing. The third, <laughs> the third one. Uh, there was a poster at some uh, rally in the United States re- uh, recently which had the thing, ban Viagra, or Viagra, ban Viagra, impotence is God's will. I don't want my tax dollars paying for your erection. If pregnancy is God's will, then so is impotence. Hard to argue. It is. I mean, yes, if you go down the things are God's will path, then what isn't God's will? The fact that I'm punching you in the face is God's will. <laughs> okay. Uh, and and finally, this this is magic. There's a guy called Dave Daubenmeyer, Daubenmeyer perhaps. He's an American. He, he uh, does YouTube videos and things and I suppose television as Coach Dave Live. Listen to this. Masturbation is a form of homosex. You're having sex with yourself. That's homosex, folks. It's a male having sex with a male. That's homosex. If a woman masturbates, that's a woman having sex with a woman. That is a form of lesbianism. I mean, I don't. What else would you call it? What else would you call it? The the, the central act, you know, activity of my life. Still carrying. That's what, that's what I, call it. I thought you said you were married. I am. <laughs> what, what on earth do you think that changes? <laughs> I suppose you've only got two kids. I have only got two kids and only one <laughs> wife. There's only so much she's prepared to put up with. Uh, at which point I think we should I, leave you to I go back to your it, lovely yes. wife. <laughs> she's not here. <laughs> That's definitely She's not here. It. I'm going back to my favourite activity. <laughs> Excellent. Maybe I will too. Thank you for that. Thank you, Still. See you next time, See Nicholas. Well, before I uh, nip off for a crafty wank, let me just say that you can support this podcast by going to stillgerrigan.com slash tip or skank.com.au slash subscribe. The next episode of The Edict will be when I fucking will feel like it. Until then, I'm Stillgerrigan. Have a good one. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.